You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Equity markets have always climbed the wall of worry, but never before has that wall seemed so steep and so littered with shaky footholds as it does today. The list of things that could go wrong is seemingly endless, but one by one they all seem to vanish with the onset of another news cycle as market participants find a new problem to focus on. The disconnect between our seemingly troubled times and the financial markets which stubbornly remain largely impervious to all that ails them is both stark and confusing. Will rising rates, contracting economies, booming debt levels and renegade tweets one day magically matter? Or is this market just getting started, as some observers believe? This week, on Adventures in Finance, a reality check. It's the 19th of April 2018 and welcome everybody to episode 63 of Adventures in Finance. Uh, joining us in the Cayman Islands, as always, is producer James. James, are you there? I am here. How's everyone going? It's really good. Now, you've been, you've been ill this week. Have you recovered? <coughs> yeah, no, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling better. I am. Okay. There's, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, scepticism around the office about your... Uh, your health that it was the weather was so perfect this week so well the I'm minute gonna... i heard you weren't in the office i was like oh good i can come back to the office yeah, now so exactly right. it's, exactly it's right. fine uh, someone who's uh, put in a proper shift who's been there all week at the coalface working mm. hard as always in new york alex come in alex hello how are you gentlemen how's your health um, i'm going strong i mean i i'm, I'm almost 110 percent. if anything I'm, I'm stronger than knox well and let's face it and even if you were sick you'd just run through a brick wall and get to the office right playing sick that's, that's how me. you roll yeah that's yeah. how you roll well, we've got a lot to get to today. Uh, joining us in a little while is uh, Neil Azus. Neil is the editor and publisher of uh, Site Beyond Site, uh, a financial newsletter, and the founder of Rareview Macro. He'll be joining us shortly to talk about, well, the markets. Let's face it, there's uh, a lot of confusion about what the hell is going on, none more so than between my ears. So I'm hoping Neil is going to help me clear that up. Uh, before we get to that, however, you know where we're going to go first, and that is the good old long short feature. Now, as always... Alex, I'm going to give you the chance to put a stake in the ground. What do you got for me, my friend? All right. I am long hip-hop. You are long hip-hop. Uh, okay, did you see Last Week Tonight with John Oliver this week? I hate to say that. I, I usually watch it on Monday, but I missed it. Well, I'm, 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 I'm just warning you now. If you watch it, there'll be a segment, I'm sure, up on YouTube where he shows all the times that Ari Melba has talked hip-hop and mentioned Jay-Z. Uh-huh. And y- y- I, I fear that you may look even more ridiculous than him saying it so just be careful where you go with this my friend okay i'm, I'm gonna watch out <laughs> i'm gonna watch out uh yeah so kendrick lamar rapper kendrick lamar yes awarded the pulitzer prize yes, for music yeah <laughs> in, in in for his uh 2017 album i don't i think i'm allowed to say damn james yeah yeah you're good yeah. okay for his 2017 album damn uh the first rapper to Actually, the first non-jazz or classical composer to be awarded the Pulitzer music. So I, I think it's it's richly deserved, and it, it's good for good for hip hop. It, it's it's pretty cool. Pretty, oh, you know, I'd, cool. Love, I'd love know. to I'd love to talk intelligently about Kendrick Lamar, but okay. yeah, I really can't. I no. you know I, I know who he is. I could I could I could recognize him. Maybe not on the street, but I could recognize him on MTV. 
but I, I would never claim to be any kind of critic of his music, I'm afraid. So uh, looks if he's won the Pulitzer Prize, good luck to him. Puts him in rare company, it has to be said. Now, if you talk about some of the jazz pioneers that have won it, those I could talk about, but again, I think I'm just showing my age there. All right, look, my long this week is um, I'm along the London skyline uh, because there was a report out this mm. week saying that there are going to be 510 uh, skyscrapers in the pipeline to be added to the London um, skyline. There's 115 of them underway, which is a record. Um, and that's, uh, that's a, in London at least, it's got to have at least 20 floors to count as a skyscraper. Now, whilst I'm long the London skyline, I'm long 510 new skyscrapers, it's a massive short signal to me because any time you get this kind of building, uh, we all know the, the tall, world's tallest building indicator, what that does to market tops. Um, and uh, my good friend Pippa Melgren, I was tweeting about this earlier today, and, and, and Pippa, who's on one of the many boards she's on for, for London infrastructure, um, she assures me that the demand for space uh, means that these 510 skyscrapers are not nearly enough to, um, to satisfy the demand, but I still, I don't know, Pip, I love you, but I still am not so sure about this. I, I, when I see 510 skyscrapers being built in London, which didn't really get its first skyscraper until about 1994, it really rings alarm bells in my head. Well, it's funny because it, all the consternation among economists about Brexit, you, you wouldn't think that all these skyscrapers would be going up now. You, you heard about all the companies that might be leaving London right. rather than yeah, coming. Yeah, no, great point, great point. But... Um, well, look, we'll see. We'll see. Time, as always, will tell. There's there's 128 have been applied for. There's 267 have received planning permission, and another 115 are already being built. So the space is going to be there. Let's see who fills it. Um, all right, mate, what is your short this week? Well, I'm short oil paint. Oil paint? Oil paint. Ah, oh. is this the thing about the color red? No. What's oh, okay. that, no. though? I want, right. Now I want no, to hear about no, that. No, that's fine. That's fine. I'm going to save that for next week. <laughs> okay. A little, little teaser. Yeah, um, there you go. So uh, a work called The Holy Virgin Mary by Chris Ophelia, entering the permanent collection of the, Metropol- uh, the Museum of Modern Art, pardon me, in New York, as a, from a, a gift by Steve Cohen, of course, of uh, mm-hmm. formerly Stack Capital, now 2072. Yeah. Correct. So this was the work that uh, New Yorkers might remember caused a huge fight in the city when Rudy Giuliani, who was then the mayor, tried to uh, cut the city's financing to the Brooklyn Museum because they were showing it. And the reason the work offended uh, is because it's it's a painting of a uh, kind of version you might not normally see of the of the Virgin Mary. And then it's resting on a sort of a footstool of two pieces of elephant dung, one of which says uh, Virgin and the other which says Mary. So... Uh, just get some numbers in there. Piece was sold for four point six million in twenty fifteen. Now it's being donated by Cohen to MoMA. And I guess now I'm thinking people who paint with uh, regular painting materials like oil paint might think you know dung, uh, other things like that might be the way to go. Wait, it's 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 not painted with actual elephant dung. So other pieces by this artist, he, I think he has included elephant dung in the painting. But this, yeah, I always thought this was painted with elephant dung. Turns out it's just it's just the kind of uh, rester for the painting. <laughs> yeah, well, so. you know what? Listen, for, 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 for anybody who you haven't upset, um, I, I don't really know what to, what to say about that. I, I would normally steer well clear of uh, religion and elephant dung whenever talking about a long, short idea. But uh Hey, I guess it's next time in New York. I'll go and take a look at it and see uh, see if I can make a judgment on it. Although yeah. I was in the Middle East recently and I went to see the Salvador Mundi in the Louvre, Ooh. but it's not there yet. So, well, I guess it's not. Either, it's either not there yet or it's been stolen. I don't know which. Presumably, I would have read about <laughs> it if it's been stolen. But uh, there's a big hole on the wall where the Salvador Mundi should go. So, where where are, where are you right now, by the way? Can we play a very quick "Where in the World Is Grant Williams"? No, I'm not going to get any clues. Think, okay. think, think, chocolate and mountains. Um. Now, my short for the week, uh, batten down the hatches, fellas, batten down the hatches. Are we ready? I am once again going short millennials. Insert insert sound effect here, James, of sort of riots and (laughs) fires being lit. But no, I'll tell you for why. Uh, I read a story that really actually just terrifies me and and makes me feel incredibly sad about what's going on here. Uh, It was a... um, a survey done by Credit Karma, and they found that nearly 40% of millennials have gone into debt to try and keep up with their peers. 
whether it's fancy weekends away, it's staying in hotels, it's drinking expensive, you know, uh, trendy vodkas, buying jewellery, flash car, all this kind of stuff. Um, but 40% of them are in debt because they have FOMO, good old fear of missing out. Uh, it's, it's the it's the the new generation's keeping up with the Joneses. Um, but unfortunately, they're spending all this money, they're borrowing the money to do it, borrowing money to go away on holidays. Uh, and, and we have, you know, just another a debt trap. But the, the line that really kind of brought it home to me, uh, it said, you know, out of the 40% of people who went into debt for their social lives, 73% kept it a secret from their friends, which is, you know, it's really sad. And we and we do live in this world where um, image is everything and, uh, you know, you've got to look the part on Instagram and you've got to be in all these fancy places and you've got to be doing all the cool things, all the cool people. But to see a group of people going into debt about this, um, you know, at the beginning of their lives is just is just incredibly sad. And you know, I, I tweeted the story out uh, today and had a lot of people coming back about it. You know, a, a lot of valid points being made. But you know, people talked about the baby boomers being irresponsible, buying you know cars and houses, et cetera, et cetera, which is absolutely right. Look, what debt is going into massive amounts of debt to fund the lifestyle you can't afford is irresponsible, no matter whether you're a millennial or you're, you're, you're a baby boomer or a, a poor Gen Xer like me stuck in the middle. But, um, you know, the, the beauty of wasting your money on on cars and houses, I guess, I guess, if you want a bright side, is that they have some residual value. When you're, when you're spending your money on expensive vodka and $5 lattes and weekends away, you know, experiences, as somebody tweeted to me, uh, that's that's what millennials like to spend the money is experiences rather than things. That's great. But again, there's no, there's no resale value. If you have a fire sale of uh, all your, your 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 trips to find yourself in beautiful beaches in Asia, you're not going to get any money back. Yeah, my my dad uh, said to me when I graduated university, uh, back when fees were cheaper in the UK, um, he he paid for everything, and he said, "I'm not going to get you a watch. I'm allowing you to start your life debt free," and it's been the best gift he's ever given me because I'm still debt free to this day. I'm debt free. I hope you I hope you realise, James, what a fantastic gift that is your dad gave you. That really is the best gift I think any parent could give their kids once they graduate university. Yeah, I, I just hope that I can do the same for mine. Yes, indeedy. Yes, indeedy. It it really made me feel quite sad that, that there's a, a generation of people who are going into debt because it kind of feels like if we don't, we're not going to be with the cool kids. So I, I found that very sad. So that's my short for the week. Yeah, I just wish it was driven by YOLO and not FOMO. Well, look, maybe it is. Maybe there's YOLO, maybe there's FOMO, maybe there's, well, you've already spoken about MoMA this week. Who knows what it is? It's, it's, <laughs> it's bound to be a four-letter acronym. Yeah. Um, but, it's yeah, I, I just find that, I, I find that very, very sad. Yeah, and I think we're going to talk about FOMO uh, with our with our guest here in a second. We will definitely talk about FOMO. What a, what a perfect way to segue to ah. our guest. It's almost like you've done this before, Alex. <laughs> um, yes, well, let's 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 get off the the sadness of people in debt and get on to our guest this week, uh, Neil Azus, the editor of uh, Site Beyond Sight and the founder of Rareview Macro. Neil joins us from Stanford, Connecticut. So, Neil, welcome to Adventures in Finance. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here with you guys. Yeah, so I'm I'm familiar with your work. I'm, I'm a big fan. You, you have a really interesting way of looking at the market, but maybe introduce yourself a bit to our audience. Sure, thanks. So I, I wear two hats. Uh, firstly, I'm the founder and chief investment officer at Rareview Capital. It's an investment advisory firm registered with the SEC. We specialize in income solutions, specifically closed-end funds, and investors can access our products you know, via separate accounts or a mutual fund. I'm also the founder of Rareview Macro, which is an independent research firm, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Sight Beyond Sight, a financial newsletter built for global macro investing. Yeah, great. So so in one of your recent Sight Beyond Sight notes, you wrote something that caught my eye about the, I believe, the, the FOMO uh, move we could soon see in the market. So maybe you could explain that to us. Sure. So FOMO is just an adjective or an acronym for fear of missing out. So the idea at this stage of the quarter and the year of missing out on upside performance, given the new backdrop in the market, outweighs the risk of having to defend a position uh, should some type of tape bomb or negative situation materialize. It's something people are accustomed to dealing with at this point through the year. Um, So it's more important right now not to miss out on a trade or an upside in some type of asset. Yeah, and, and walk us through some of those those bullish catalysts you see that, that could serve as uh, one of those triggers to make people say, wow, I, I need to get in now. Yeah, great. 
So I guess up front, let me just be very clear. Not, this is not necessarily about being long-term bullish or bearish. It's about reading the tea leaves of global macro and being open-minded about higher prices over the next couple of weeks. So I sort of title this segment or this two-week window, you know, the sun is rising again for equity bulls. And if you go through the list of the most cited reasons recently for, for risk assets to remain weak, the, the arguments are pretty well um, articulated. So very briefly, you had forthcoming social network regulation, a la Facebook. You had sem semiconductors no longer being a one-way secular trade. There were recent cracks that argue that they can trade cyclical again. Of course, we had trade tariffs. Um, currently, every day we hear about higher LIBOR and how that equates to one or two interest rate hikes. Um, and, of course, a day doesn't go by where we don't hear about the, the weakness in European growth-related data and how global growth synchronization is being ripped apart. Um, and then from an earnings standpoint, uh, we had Q1 record revisions. And with the S&P expected to grow almost 30 percent this year in earnings, earnings have nowhere to go but down. You throw in some geopolitics such as Syria or Russia linkages and the sanctions. And then, of course, you know, no, no negative conversation would be conclusive without the Mueller investigation and that recently crossing a red line for Trump. So when you, when you think about each one of those bearish data points or those reasons for continued risk asset weakness or, or higher volatility, you, there's, there's now over the last two or three weeks a development in each one of those that have changed the sentiment regarding each one of those. So, uh, Alex, let's just go, Grant, let's just go through each of those very briefly. So I mentioned, you know, forthcoming social network regulation, which sort of kicked this off over the last month regarding Facebook. You know, ultimately, Mark Zuckerberg you know, wore a suit and a tie to his congressional testimony um, uh, last week. He addressed each government official as Mr. Chairman or Senator, and the market believes that he sent a consigliatory message, which goes a long way. And then there's no chance that the Senate or the government is able to put in regulation over the next two or three years. They have a difficult time understanding what a social network is, as many of them are still thinking about AOL, AOL dial-up to get onto the Internet. So we've got a lot of time before that impacts earnings, so that's now removed from the market. Regarding semiconductors no longer being a one-way trade and the recent cracks in the market that they can trade cyclical again, what we've heard since that time is Taiwan Semiconductor, the world's largest supplier of made-to-order chips, their sales rose 21% last week, which was their largest on record. Intel's going to report earnings next week. If you look at the stock, there's nothing wrong with it. It closed at an all-time high today, effectively. Um, and the fact that the hacking scandal earlier in the year or Apple moving away from Intel chips couldn't drag on the stock suggests that earnings are going to be strong regardless. Either way, unless these two stocks have a wobble, it remains pretty difficult to argue a further semiconductor weakness. Regarding trade tariffs, you know, the topic de jour um, over the last 30 days, did we win the trade war in the United States? The, the answer is absolutely not. But what we heard from President Xi Jinping at the recent Bao Forum, which is their Asian version of Davos, it shows that the market got the first taste that the U.S. can win that war. And that's important. So it's not about that these have gone away. It's that it's winnable. Regarding higher LIBOR and that equating to one or two interest rate hikes, it's important to recognize that the rate of change has slowed. Analysts are beginning to call for a mean reversion. In last week's minutes of the most recent FOMC meeting, the Fed did not discuss LIBOR at all. Only the Fed staff did. This is an important distinction that shows you how little concern the Fed is over higher LIBOR at the moment. Additionally, this week we've probably seen almost a dozen different um, variations of the yield curve inverting in the forward markets three to 12 months out. And so we're getting much closer to the end of the hiking cycle, now looking out three to six months. On the European data um, weakness, you know, that's a tough one. Those are some pretty serious negative catalysts, Neil. That's not the rosiest picture. The, the, the narrative is actually two ways. It's not all one way. Yes, the growth data is deteriorating. It's very visible. Even the latest data in the last 24 hours showed a marketable decline, which um, is actually quite alarming, you know, given where they're at. But on the flip side, the inflation data, especially under the surface, is percolating. And so it's not one-way disinflationary. It's more of a stagflationary bent, but coming from a low base in inflation and a high base in growth data. And so we're not at a point yet where that can disrupt things. 
And then finally, just on, 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 on Q1 earnings revisions, you know, about they have nowhere to go. I would just say that over 50 S&P companies um, issued positive earnings per share guidance for Q1 um, over the last couple of weeks. That's a record according to FactSet. It argues that the earnings revisions will be maintained or that if there's any reversal, it's going to be mild. Um, and now I would just say the, the, the market correction is two months long in the tooth. Because the market is a forward discounting mechanism, you now get two more months of EPS to add into next year's forecast. And finally, a lot of stocks were just down or 10 or 20 percent. So the market or the key stocks are at a much better level to absorb disappointment from here. Um, on the Syria front, you know, this is a topic that I spent a lot of time on or how military conflict on or off the soil of a sovereign state um, can impact markets. Ultimately, it just comes down to three very basic things. Is a superpower involved? Is crude oil involved? And is there the ability to disrupt the financial markets due to economic contagion? In Syria's case, they don't meet any of that criteria whatsoever. And the linkage to Russia being sort of contagion, even if the ruble was down 10%, it has no impact. And the reason that is is that it had no impact when it was down 60% a few years ago in the height of the Crimea invasion. So there's a long way to go. Crude oil is a lot higher than where it was back then, and the reserves in Russia are a lot stronger than they were back then as well. The one that I can't handicap, and I don't think anybody has, is still the Mueller investigation and how that potentially crossed the red line last week or two weeks ago. So that remains an unknown, and it's difficult for bulls to spin at the moment. So we'll leave that out there as negative overhang. So those were the uh, Alex and Grant. Those were the you know major negative talking points over the last four weeks. You know, since that time, we seem to have addressed almost each one of them in some type of fashion. When you sort of read the tea leaves of global macro. So you've addressed some of the bears' arguments. Are there specific bullish data points that you're looking at? Well, these are, uh, you know, uh, again, optically visible to a lot of people at the moment. The, the, the main one being stock buybacks. As everybody knows, the largest marginal buyer of equities in the marketplace is, is, is now returning as earnings end for certain companies. The blackout periods of what they call them are, are somewhat over. And so the expectation by people who count these beans for a living is that there's going to be a significant ramp up in buyback announcements with over $150 billion in incremental announcements. That's potentially just during this Q1 earnings seasons. So if you think about how that works, I think the, 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 the mechanics is, is that two-thirds of companies deploy a discretionary program as to how and when they buy back their stocks. The other third operate on a systematic program. So on a discretionary basis, the rule of thumb is, is that they go into a blackout period at the end of the prior quarter until they report earnings, and they don't start buying back their stock until 48 to 72 hours afterwards. Well, that window has now just opened for, say, the entire financial sector. Um, and so you have to think just of the analogy most recently, which was the second half of February, when um, companies were able to buy back their stock and what that sort of added to the recovery after the 10% sell-off. The second new data point is tax receipts. You know, yesterday or today was the tax, uh, uh, tax deadline. Um, the second half of April is historically very bullish because of tax refunds and people funding their IRA accounts and that money going right back into the marketplace. Um, also at the same time, next week is the heart of earnings. Historically, 80% of all S&P gains come during earnings season. And then I just on, you know, in the short term, volatility Regarding volatility, the VIX has returned to 15. It's very obvious to professionals in the marketplace that call option overwrite strategies have returned and are selling significant options or Vega in size. You know, and that positive sentiment is being reinforced because U.S. and European equity implied volatility today fell below their one-year averages. So with the VIX at 15, the vol of vol index known as VVIX is also at a new low for the year. It's aiding sentiment. And then just finally, it's, you know, on the short term, this is a statistically bullish equity option expiration week. It's the second one um, of the year that's most historically bullish. If you look at the mismatches in, in, in call options versus put options um, on upper strikes, it's uh, uh, significantly skewed towards upper strikes or the market being sh what, they, what is known in the professional adage um, of being short gamma. And so there's a potential for these upper strikes to act as a magnet as prices go higher. And so, you know, collectively, you've got a whole host of certain things going on 
Um, and if you, you know, get into more of the weeds, such as positioning, you know, the CTAs, which use the most leverage in the hedge fund community, are neutral equities at the moment. Crude oil is making new all-time highs. The correlation between crude oil and the S&P 500 is extremely high at the moment. So as the barrel continues its move back towards higher prices or the repair process, that should aid or act as a support mechanism for the S&P 500. And that's it. And then you move into things that are a little bit more obvious to people, such as the technicals. And I think when you look at things over the last five days, I believe the S&P has made five higher highs in a row. It's very uncommon. Um, over the last five days as well, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, and the Russell 2000 all broke above their respective neckline of their bullish reversal patterns. That allows for more short-term upside. And so I think we're in a path here, you know, for another several percent higher. Um, you know, in order to negate this, technically, we would have to close um, about 50 handles lower in the S&P 500, around 2657. Um, and so ultimately, the, the market is being set up for a run back to somewhere around 2800 plus in the S&P 500, um, you know, over the next couple of weeks. So, Neil, let, let me just ask you, uh, playing devil's advocate here, because I, I, sure. I, I totally hear everything you're saying, but I can't help but feel as though if you try and distill down the bull case right across the, right across the board, it seems to me to be, you know, all the bad stuff we were worried about hasn't happened yet, so you, we can take DEFCON 3 off and just carry on as we were. You know, when we... When we talk about a lot of this stuff, the buyback thing, you know, people people take the buybacks as a good thing. And when you look at you know, IBM's results, um, awful results, and yet they've got a massive buyback program coming out, you look at uh, something like the Fed uh, are really not concerned about LIBOR OAS spreads blowing out. That just makes me think about the Fed uh, being completely unconcerned about subprime being contained. And I look at... Um, the 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 one piece that we that no one really kind of seems to talk about uh, these days and that's the economic data and it and it seems to me as though there's a there's a massive disconnection between the economic data and the performance of the stock market which is fine right i, I mean I, I, they don't have to go in lockstep but at this stage in um an expansion when things are certainly not as strong as the the, the powerhouse equity markets would have you believe it feels to me as though there's a great need to to justify markets going higher, and the main justification for that seems to not be um, a great economy. It seems to be, you know, all these really bad things that could have happened haven't. I mean, what do you think about that? Am I am I completely out of my mind here? No, not not at all. I, I think the idea is is just how to separate your time frames um, from each of those data points. And so if you asked me what my favorite structure might be in the marketplace right now, I would tell you that the S&P 500 will trade plus 5% on the year or minus 5% in that sort of 10% range indefinitely. The difference being is, is that if a week ago we were at flat on the year, you have to make a call that over the next two to four weeks before all of those other issues come to fruition, do you want to embrace that move for a three to five percent move higher yeah. on that fear of missing out because you're a money manager. But ultimately, what that actually is setting up for, once you get to those levels, is a fallback to new lows as you enter the second half of the second quarter, right? And so that's just a question of the timeframes that you work on. Um, regarding your individual data points about buybacks and the manufacturing of EPS through those, sure. That's not new. It's going to continue. The float shrinks 2 to 3% a year. There are very few IPOs, as you know. Um, and so it's just something that we have to contend with. And, and I, I would argue that it, it, it's actually more pronounced than that. You know, we used to look at a metric called the Wilshire 5000. There's actually only 3,700 yeah, stocks. In exactly it. right. <laughs> so we don't, we don't really have that much float around. And so ultimately, it becomes just a supply and demand argument, you know, over time. And, and people have grappled onto the windows of when they open, the buybacks open and when they close. It just so happens to be that they're opening again for the next two weeks. So that's a narrative that somebody wants to latch onto to justify their long position because 95 percent of the world is always long. Right. The, the economic divergence from the stock market, um, it's been like it's been divergent, you know, 
for, for, for eight years in my mind that has been incredibly difficult to mirror the economic or the business cycle relative to the stock market, but not just on the stock market level, also on the, in, uh, on the sector level, more importantly, because cyclicality acts one way, value versus growth acts one way, FANG acts one way, and, and it, it's very convoluted, and all, this, all the playbooks that we read growing up don't work any longer resulting in that. My, my thought process on that is more intermediate or long-term. If this is true and the Fed and other central banks are able to walk away from their extraordinary policies, in theory, we should re- be able to return to that normal environment you and I both grew up on, Grant. And, and, and I'm looking forward to that, and I, I hope it actually happens. Uh, but in the meantime, the play, you know, they've set a set of, set of certain goalposts. And so, you know, as an investor or a professional money manager, you just have to, you know, play within the goalposts that, that they've provided. Uh, on the LIBOR OIS side, um, you know, that's a very interesting, you know, discussion. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, you, you, there are many trillions of dollars benchmarked to floating rate paper. And to argue that this does not have an impact um, in, in, in a widespread sense is, is very misguided to me. It, it impacts the consumer dramatically. It's equivalent to one or two rate hikes. So if we're going to raise rates two to three times this year, according to the Fed's dots, and we're going to have a hike of one to two times because of LIBOR, and the Fed is draining their balance sheet, a.k.a. quantitative tightening, and that's the equivalent of one-plus interest rate hikes. We're having a conversation collectively between those three mechanisms of, of potentially five or six hikes in one year. And to me, there's no question that the market um, is, is, is a, the equity market is um, embracing of that or acceptive of that. And ultimately, that will be borne out um, sometime in my mind, and it could be even in the next month, that there will be a red headline across everybody's screen that says the nominal yield curve has inverted, you know, twos, tens, five, thirties, whatever yeah. it is. And, and, and we're already seeing that in all of the forward markets um, you know, there were there was actually you know a, a very big event today in the marketplace. The, the 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 yield curve had flattened so much that anybody who had a steepener position or was looking to take the other side that was put to rest today. And that that's how powerful what you're describing is on the global economic data deteriorating or the synchronization not being as pronounced as it was six months ago. You know, is, is certainly being reflected in the long end of these yield curves. And for all of the talk of higher yields. We really haven't moved higher in the in the long end in in, in eight weeks. We've been in the exact same place. Well, this is so, you know, this is why I find this this is why I find this so baffling to me because uh, you know I think everything you've said there kind of confirms the way I the way I look at this stuff and I think about um, what I would have to go against in terms of as you so beautifully put it the markets we grew up with all the things that I've learned in a thirty plus year career I would have to go against all that for a return of 3 to 5% when everything I know uh, tells me I shouldn't do it. And, and yet it seems to me that with this expansion going on so long, um, uh, let's talk about the stock market expansion as opposed to economic expansion, it's, it's gone on so long. And I, I just I get that feeling that there are a lot of people who, who have missed out on the first five or six years because they, they did figure the world worked the way they thought it did. And they're starting to try and find ways to justify. You know what? I've just got to. I've got to. I've got to hold my nose and get in, but I've got to come up with a justification for it because I just can't look myself in the mirror unless I come up with something. And, and that's that's just the way it feels to me. I, 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 you know, when I travel around the world, I'm fortunate to talk to a lot of really smart money managers um, through through my uh, work with Real Vision. You know, so I, I'm sitting in a chair. I'm the dumbest guy in every conversation I have, which is which is confronting, but it's great. But everywhere I go and everybody I talk to, you know, they've got they've got more cash than they've had, if not in their careers, than certainly in the last ten years. They're all nervous about stuff, and so I really struggle to put the two sides together. That it's okay to be long here. Don't worry about LIBOR. Don't worry about the Fed. Don't worry about rate hikes. Don't worry about buybacks. Don't worry about uh, results season. I really have a hard time putting those two things together and, and working out what the right path is between them. I could add to that. Um, I don't know if I have an answer to it, but I can certainly add to the confusion. Um, <laughs> it it, it, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense that interest rates are going higher and the U.S. dollar is weaker. Um, right. That you know that that relationship being broken is um, very fundamental in the market. You can link the you know the long end of um, 
of the yield curve here to how come Japanese equities can perform in that environment when our yields are not going up or dollar yen is doing something different. The, the list of those things that are aggravating the global macro community is very long right now. And, and again, I do agree that um, these issues are mounting and none of them are going away. Um, but we live in a world where, you know, you have to choose between P&L and an opinion um, and the career that you chose. And so if, if, if that doesn't settle uh, with somebody, then perhaps they should not be doing what they're, they're tasked to do and they should try a different career trajectory. Um, but I, I ultimately, like in my case, um, you know, the way I sort of tried to set the tone at the onset is, is that I'm not a bull or a bear. Um, I sort of live in a, in, a, in a three to nine month time bucket of how I look at the world and the markets. Um, I don't have big picture views. Um, and if, I, if you put a gun to my head and say, what do you want to do? Uh, you know, my, my exercise right now is, is to own some upside in a defined and measured way uh, with the view that, you know, two weeks from now or two months from now, we could be looking at new lows in the market um, and potentially significantly new lows for whatever comes. Um, and I think people are, 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 are coming around to that, um, although I would, I, would, I would argue that strategists or paid forecasters out there are doing a very good job right now of saying that all of these risks are embedded in the market. Um, the yield curve, um, while it might be a headline for one to two weeks or a headache for the equity markets, we find that a recession statistically doesn't come for at least a year after that inversion. Um, and as long as growth and inflate, uh, growth and earnings um, are performing, that can offset inflation risk in the marketplace. So there, there's still time here um, to do that. Um, I'm in the camp that, you know, we've made a high on the year for now. Um, we're in a range trade of 5% of on either side of unchanged on the year. And that's a good range because if you think about these ranges from uh, you know a more shorter term time standpoint, one day to two months, you know over the last two months we've probably had 40% up and down in, in in prices for people to transact in, you know, and and that's an environment we haven't had for the last few years because it's been all one way, and so there are opportunities, and it's not just in the equity market. There are opportunities um, in other other asset classes right now, particularly commodities. Um, that are are exciting. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, we, maybe we'll get back to the commodities later. Um, and, and I want to follow up on the sentiment, though. You know, I know you like to think about the pain trade, and maybe you can speak a bit to where you think managers are positioned right now. And, and I guess you, you must think the pain trade, at least in the in the short term, is to the upside. Sure. So just keeping things very simple, you have three buckets. You have the retail investor, you have um, real money, um, mutual funds, if you will, um, and then you have um, hedge funds and hedge funds being broken up by um, systematic funds or, or you know, model-driven strategies that use the most amount of leverage, and then you have your standard long, short, um, or, or discretionary um, hedge funds. Um, the retail community um, is very long. They have stopped adding money um, but they are very long on stocks, period. Um, yes, they have a level of caution, um, but their level of caution is a lot lower than ours on this phone or most of the people probably listening on to this podcast, um, ultimately because at the end of the day, they get a quarterly statement. They don't look at things monthly. And so the 12% drop in mid-February, most people didn't know that that existed. And so until they see something on a total return um, viewpoint that hits their statement, uh, they are not as concerned as the professional community. Um, on the mutual fund side, the default exercise in these types of environment is to go and peel back risk in single digits. So if somebody had 100 chips to play, some of these guys took 2 or 3% off. But their mandate is to be long, so they're still long. On the hedge fund side, it's slightly different. The, the model-driven strategies, which make up the most amount of, of, of positioning, they're dead neutral right now. Um, all various metrics show that, so they're not participating. Hence, if equity markets go higher and specifically momentum and trend factors kick back in, they will go get long. It's very simple. It's model-driven. It's not human or emotionally driven. Um, discretionary guys, um, both in macro and long-short, um, their gross exposure is down. Um, the upside that they may have on is limited. It's defined to call options 
It's not outright futures or single stock positioning. They're clearly much more nervous and their gross exposure has come down. But between those three various segments, it's important to recognize, you know, out of the $80 trillion in the world, only $1 trillion of that or $2 trillion is in the hedge fund community, um, with half of it being model-driven. And so one out of the $80 trillion doesn't have the ability to drive broad sentiment. They have the ability to do something on a tactical basis over a one- to three-day period. But you need support from retail um, or mutual funds to, to, to liquidate, to have you know, a real event besides something that lasts 24 to 48 hours being down 10%. And so the, the, the market is ripe now for the hedge fund community, specifically CTAs, if, if momentum and trend factors kick back in, for length to be added back to the stock market in the meantime. And there's probably enough cash balances in the mutual fund for them to add a percentage or two back into the market, which goes a lot longer of a way than the hedge fund community. And that, that's kind of the setup of what you're referring to as the professional pain trade of having to chase higher prices. And again, you know, to Grant's point, you know, it, it, it runs counter to everybody's opinion at the moment, um, unless you are truly a fundamental long-term bull on earnings um, or growth, which I'm not. Um, but, uh, um, you know, that's the setup in the very short term it is specifically this two-week window where tax refunds, volatility is back to a 15, all those things we mentioned earlier. And so, again, it just comes back to time frames. But the pain trade in the short term is higher prices. Yeah. And then so if the, if the upside is tactical and kind of positioning driven and the potential downside is economy driven, that, that would suggest to me that the downside could be much more salient. So, you know, we, we don't usually don't dig too much into the weeds uh, of these trades, but I think it's worth asking whether options might be a better way to express this than, than equity outright. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer. Uh, you know, my background in both credit and equity derivatives, um, you know, leads me to options markets um, automatically, especially when volatility, including upside volatility, has moved back to significantly low levels. For example, over the next two weeks, the upside volatility in the S&P 500 is back to a 10 vol, right? Just, a, you know, a month or two ago, we were at a 50 vol one or two days. And so you can buy an incredible amount of leverage um, on the upside, um, you know, at a very cheap price at the moment. So, for example, you know, just thinking out loud here, looking very quickly, somebody could buy a, a 2800, 2850 call spread in the S&P 500 for um, around $4, which gives you um, a 12 to 1 payout ratio with almost 30 days left till your expiration for a 3% upside move. And if that move were to happen, um, over a two-day period where we just had two 1% back-to-back days, you know, that option with volatility increasing from this low level would perform, um, you know, handsomely. And so, yes, and you're doing that with a defined risk profile where you don't have to take the downside risk. You, you just are going to outlay what you're, you're willing to lose. And if it works, you know, you, you, you hit, you know, snake eyes on the crafts table. So, Neil, just, just one last question to close. You, you said something there that, uh, that, that pricked my ears up, um, and it comes back to the dollar, which you, you really you can't have a macro discussion without talking about the dollar because it sits right in the middle of all of this stuff. And, and I, too, like you, have been fascinated by, this, um, by the falling dollar in the face of rates. I've seen the positioning uh, move heavily short the dollar, which you know, would normally suggest that we're going to get a big snapback rally, uh, the kind that the dollar balls have been looking for for a while. And I think that's possible, in fact, probable at some point. Um, but the alternate way of looking at this is that that finally deficits and debt are starting to matter. You know, we've, 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 we've seen the Trump budget. We've seen uh, forecasts out now that say that the uh, deficit's going to be pushing 6% of GDP next year. Um, uh, the IMF have come out to, today with a study that's, uh, that, that, that's highly critical of the US um, budgetary indiscipline. Could it, could it be that we're at a point now where uh, the U.S. fiscal situation is actually starting to matter? Could, could it be Occam's razor? Could it be that's the simple reason people don't run the dollar because finally the math doesn't add up? Yeah, so let me um, – I, I think that's a very salient talking point. Let me just add a couple of bullet points to what you said to sort of broaden out that discussion and then, and then try to answer that. So as, as Grant just said – you know, the, the, the U.S. dollar technically is decoupled from cross 
count, uh, cross-country interest rate differentials. That, that's the technical term. Additionally, gold has decoupled from U.S. real interest rates, and we've seen the reversal of the usually negative stock bond price correlation. So there are a lot of antidotes that are starting to support you know, the, the, the U.S. dollar. And then qualitatively, the market's understanding is, is that the economic team um, under the White House administration, including being led by President Trump himself, like a weak dollar policy, um, that it's our turn to get our business in shape and weaken our currency, whereas other countries like Japan or China have had that stay in the sun for too many years. Um, so, yes, um, alongside the IMF, we saw um, a couple of days ago um, the CBOE scoring coming out and saying that it was $2 trillion higher than, um, you know, what we can pay for. Um, the list goes on. And, and we're even having conversations or using the term now twin deficits, um, which is historically reserved for an emerging market country or um, right. Great Britain, um, if you will, which um, if there wasn't the real estate boom there. Come on is, Come on. It, let's, I know, not, I, let's, 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 not, let's not get into that. <laughs> it, it, is, it is a twin deficit and it's an emerging market profile. So we're starting to look like that. I, I guess the single biggest differentiator is, as, as why it's a slower leak than a lot of people think it then versus a faster rate of change is the fact that we're still a reserve currency. And, and again, not to broaden out this discussion too much, but a lot of folks have been talking about the idea of a petro yuan currency. You know, uh, China um, over the last couple of weeks have finally launched their um, crude oil contract, um, you know, given crude oil or petrol um, helps people get from A to B in the real world. It's, it's really the most significant um, asset that, that has impact to a country's um, deficit or surplus. And so the idea over time now, when I use the word over time, let's call it three to ten years, um, you have a, a new sheriff in town regarding a potential for a competing reserve currency now that crude oil can be priced in Chinese yuan. And so there is a lot of scope for a weaker dollar. I understand it's been trading sideways for the last six months or so. Um, and I know that people want to believe that it can have a, a strong bounce. Um, I struggle um, both quantitatively and qualitatively how that can happen in this environment um, with the most important anchor to that view being we're actually much closer to the end of the interest rate hiking cycle than the beginning if we're not going to be done in the June being our last interest rate hike. And so the idea that it can appreciate um, I think is fairly challenged at this stage. And so, um, you know, I'm not afraid of, of being negative on it or, or just having the bias of, of, of a dollar leaking lower over time. Yeah, interesting point. Um, so, Neil, thanks so much for, for joining us on Adventures in Finance. Uh, where can people find more of your, your thoughts on the market? Oh, sure. Um, I write a newsletter called Sight Beyond Sight, either at rareviewmacro.com or sightbeyondsight.com. Um, you know, it's, it's actionable trading ideas across regions and asset classes using both cash and derivative instruments. Um, and they can get that, uh, uh, look at it on the Internet uh, if they're interested in that. So thanks very much for mentioning that. Great to great. be with you guys. I, I hope you guys are doing great work. Uh, I really appreciate your guys' efforts. Fantastic. Neil, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Talk anytime. All right. Well, you know, that's a fascinating conversation. I, I'm still I'm still really struggling with um, with putting this whole thing together because I, I just I, I keep coming back to the feeling and it's just a gut feeling that there are a lot of people just trying to find a reason to buy that doesn't cause them physical and emotional pain. And and I don't know, I, I just feel like that's the time you need to be on red alert because long-time bears are capitulating. And that only ever, ever happens at the top. So I'm, I'm very nervous. I mean, Neil makes some great points and, you know, he, he pays really close attention to these markets. But, you know, that 3 to 5% upside for the amount of risk out there, for me, I, I just don't want to play, Alex. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you're going to go out there and tactically buy a call spread uh, as another trade to add to some portfolio of trades, uh, that's fine. But... Trying, trying to. If you think there's a recession coming, and you think the yield curve uh, coming close to inverting actually does mean we're gonna, it's really gonna hit the fan here, then you probably don't want to be long stocks in any shape and form. And and being long uh, w without defining your risk, like buying call spread, really seems to be much uh, too cute, in my opinion. Well, not, not, not that I'm, not that I'm, you know, I, I may, 
if that's your view, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think the economy is rolling over, but if you do think it is, it, to squeeze out those few percent, like you said, is, is seems hazardous. It's a brave new world out there, my friend. It's a brave new world out there. Anyway, that wraps it up for us. We've run out of time for another week, amazingly. Um, I'm going to we... guess Peru. Is it Peru? Peru, that'll do. Yeah, Peru will do. Okay. Close enough. Close enough. Before we leave you, uh, the good old legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always trade responsibly. We will be back once again next week for episode 64 of Adventures in Finance. But in the meantime, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show, then we would love to hear from you. So send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And please don't forget, any Tesla bulls out there, I want to reiterate this again this week. Please, 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 please come on and give me the bullish case. Because every day that goes by and every new piece of news that happens surrounding Tesla, I am more and more desperate to hear a credible bull tell me why this thing isn't going to explode in a ball of smoke so please come on the podcast uh meanwhile if you've enjoyed what you've heard or, or enjoyed it up to the moment when he started dissing your famous tesla bull case uh please subscribe to us on itunes and leave a review yes please leave those reviews we like leave those, those reviews. reviews leave those reviews to keep up to date with the latest interviews research publications and of course podcast episodes then follow us on twitter at real vision we're also around Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. I'm not sure being around Facebook. That sounds a bit creepy to me. We're near it. We're near it. Near it. Okay, fine. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. You can follow me at Aces Rose. And you can follow me at AIF James. That's it from us, everybody, for another week. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com